Hi everyone, welcome to the Activation Project where we activate your mind, activate your tribe and activate the world. We are so excited about our guest today. His name is Sam Morris. Hey, thanks for having me. We also have Autumn Acosta here who's filling in for Christina. Hi. She's one of our activation guides. Christina is in the middle of a certification program so that we can start certifying coaches to come with the activation project who are interested in taking people through this amazing journey of activating their lives. We actually already recorded this episode last week. And then due to technical difficulties, that pesky TD that we talked about, we lost the sound to it. It was kind of like having just finished a beautiful masterpiece and then watching it get burnt to the ground. It's a little heartbreaking. But I believe that everything that happens in life is an opportunity to expand and grow or an opportunity to give up and shrink and fail. So we're taking the opportunity to expand and grow and take another set. And I think that this one is going to be even more powerful because we had some awesome revelations this week, which I think are going to be really important to add in. So we're going to hear Sam's story. And we're also going to talk a lot about shame and the sacred masculine. And then Autumn is going to lead us into some aspects of the divine feminine. So Sam, where are you from? What's your story? Thank you for having me again. Good to be here again. Um, (laughs) Yeah, that was so many lessons in that whole thing about, you know, the technical difficulties, but you know, divine timing, everything's perfect. So I grew up in Vermont and I just had my birthday on Friday, actually. So I'm 46. So 46 years ago, growing up in Vermont. And by all accounts, my childhood, I thought, and it probably looks to other people as it was pretty great. Like not wanting for anything, playing tennis and golf all summers at the country club and then skiing all winter and going on trips. There was a lot of really happiness in the household. My parents were hippies. So there was always parties around. Like our birthdays were like parties for all the adults too. So it was always people around and bluegrass bands in the front yard in the summer. And I had all these great experiences. The experience that I was having didn't really connect with me and make sense to me other than that until much later in life. The one thing I will say about my childhood is that I did have a lot of fear, a lot of fear of the world, a lot of fear of other people, a lot of fear of honestly myself, because on the underside of all that happiness and that kind of good looking childhood was that I was really sick. I had a lot of asthma, severe asthma, and a lot of food allergies. So it was to the point where there was probably a month out of the year at different times. So a week here, a week there out of the year where I would end up in the hospital with an asthma attack, whether that's pollen in the spring or the super dry air in the winter, the cold weather was always a real trigger for my asthma. So I had these experiences where the world is a very scary place, whether that's, like I said, the pollen or the cold weather, or for me, like eating a birthday cake that might have a peanut in it or some walnuts on it, something like that. There was always all these threats around me. So I had this fear of what am I going to do if something happens to me and my parents aren't around to swoop me up and save me and bring me to the hospital? And so again, like as a kid, like that was just my experience. I was just there experiencing it. And I didn't really think much of like, this is harmful or this is terrible or this is awful. It was just what I was experiencing. So that fear later in life, it turned into a lot of social anxiety. I hated social environments just because of the threats that were just prevalent all around me that I perceived. And also that, you know, I felt so different from my peers. Like all the kids were laughing and running around and playing and like basically fearless. And I was just in the corner like, oh my gosh, like this is so scary. And so the kids would, there was like 
bullying, being made fun of for like the breathing and like not being able to eat the cake and all that stuff that just all of that combined just made social experiences for me really, really uncomfortable. And so I would just retreat from that. And so when I was about six or seven years old, I started playing tennis. And tennis was absolutely perfect because it allowed me to kind of express myself in a way that I enjoyed it. I was really good at it right away. I picked it up really quickly. I fell in love with it. Tennis was my first love. And I I say it all the time, like tennis served a lot of roles for me throughout my life. And the first one was that it allowed me to kind of come out of my shell and grow up because otherwise I was really isolated. I'd retreat and just kind of hunker down and there was a little cubby hole in my house underneath the stairs that was like the perfect little spot for me. I'd bring pillows in there and just hang out. And it felt so safe. And I was like, this is awesome. And so growing up, when I found tennis, it meant that now tennis, instead of like having to come up with excuses to not hang out in these social settings, you know, I could say like, I'm going to play a tennis tournament this weekend. And I would play tennis tournaments all around New England. So Vermont, New Hampshire, Maine, Massachusetts, Connecticut, Rhode Island. Like every weekend was dedicated to tennis. And tennis became a major priority in my life. I was going to be a professional tennis player. That was my dream. Come hell or high water, that was what was going to happen. And so it kind of came in as a savior for me when I was just really uncomfortable as a kid. Like, And again, this is like a really thing that I didn't really connect the dots on this until later, but you know, it served as that shield for me, shield for the world. And so through high school, I played tennis. Um, I was ranked really high in the state of Vermont as far as a tennis player. And so that I ended up going to a postgraduate year at a tennis academy in Florida. So postgraduate year, I graduated high school in Vermont, but I wasn't ready to go to college. I didn't want to go to college. So I went to this academy in Florida where basically you play tennis all day long. You go to school from seven to nine, tennis from 9.30 to five, and then school from seven to nine. And that was your day. And it was like a dream come true for me. And so that was the catalyst that got me to a college scholarship for tennis. And so all through college, I played tennis played on tennis team. And so again, tennis was like this huge priority. I wasn't sacrificing anything. I didn't perceive it as I'm sacrificing a life to play tennis. It was just that this is what I love to do and I'm doing it. And it was perfect for me. And so now tennis, as it was that savior when I was younger, it shifted into now. And again, I say this looking back because I did not recognize this at the time, but it was now a guard against addiction and alcoholism for me because like I had that like fire burning in me, that addiction, that alcoholism fire of like, I noticed that when I did party, it was just like an out of control feeling. But I recognized too, that if I party, that tennis might get sacrificed. Like something could happen where I'm just not going to perform as well as I want to on the tennis court. So I would always put the drinking and drugs down if it meant that if I had tennis match the next day, or if I had practice the next day or during the week, like it was just, again, like tennis was there to kind of save me. And so I graduated college and that was for all intents and purposes, the end of my tennis career. I played a couple more tournaments after college, but I realized that to go to the level of the pro tour of tennis, it was like the commitment wasn't there for me. I knew I needed to like fully dedicate. And I was like, you know, I'd started to kind of enjoy life, like outside of tennis. I thought I had the social anxiety put to rest. But what was happening was, is that I had found that alcohol and drugs would kind of like put the social anxiety into the rug. And so I, I enjoyed socializing and I learned to enjoy that with alcohol and drugs. And so tennis went away. And that means there was this huge chasm in my life of that I just didn't have an identity anymore. I have a question. Do you think that imposter syndrome had anything to do with you not committing fully to the career as a tennis player? I think just lack of self-belief. Yeah. Not coming from 
a place where I had so much doubt in my own physicality, like as far as like breathing and eating, fostered a lot of imposter syndrome is a way to put it. Yeah. But it was just like, which is that feeling of I'm not good enough. Yeah. Who do I think I am? Yeah. It's very subconscious. Yeah. But it's rooted from shame as well. Yeah. I totally did not have any belief in myself at all. And so, again, like it's funny because one of the major hurdles that one of the things that came up over the years is that when I used to talk about my tennis career, I could never remember any of the wins. Like I could never remember any of the tournaments I won. I could never remember like big matches that I won. It was always the losses. Like all I could remember was the loss. And so when it came time to like believe in myself, like to be a professional tennis player, to take that step, all I remembered was losing. And so it's, again, it speaks to that bigger conversation of a lack of self-belief and imposter syndrome. And also a lack of mental coaching in the, yeah, that's somebody could have shifted your perspective Mm -hmm. if they had had the training. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Or if I, again, if I had searched it out, I think that again, starts like to search that out and to know that that's the problem would take. Like I would have to commit to that belief too. But yeah, you're right. If I had dug deep enough and like had that awareness at the time, I think it probably would have figured it out. But it was, uh, it was well, Peter Crone says everything happens exactly the way it should have happened and it couldn't have happened any other way because it didn't. Love Peter Crone. Yes. <laughs> yeah, it's so good. Totally believe that. I mean, that statement right there takes so much pressure off. Right, exactly. <laughs> it's so good. It's one of those ones that like just, never gets old like you can never not hear that statement enough Mm. just always a good reminder so when tennis fell away basically this hole in my life opened up of like what's next like what do i do now i I didn't really focus on education in college because i was there to play tennis i didn't really have like i want to be a architect or i want to be a lawyer i didn't have any desire in life because it was all about tennis Mm -hmm. so i'm stuck i'm kind of like it's like i jumped and now i'm like oh shit what's down there and so I found a job at a bank that was like entry level, nothing really. Like it was just, I was there in Charlotte and a friend of mine worked for the first union. And she's like, Hey, I have this job, this opening at this, at the small business banking department. Do you want it? I'm like, yeah, just out of college. It's a job. Like, sure. And it was a job that was there, but it allowed me, there wasn't any like effort involved and there wasn't any priority and it wasn't like, I'm going to do this the rest of my life. So it did allow me to party. It allowed me to, you know, instead of now drinking like maybe one or two nights a week on the weekends, it was now like Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday night. And the job was a point where I could show up hungover and I was, you know, young in 20s and you can recover faster then. And so what was now happening was, is that the addiction was now just ramping up. Like it was just taking off. I found that like all this socializing I was doing, I started to recognize that when I'm not drunk or doing drugs in a social situation, I'm very uncomfortable. And again, this is like a kind of a, tie it back to childhood, like well, I was always uncomfortable social situations because again, like I didn't know who I was. I was all fear-based. You know, I didn't have any faith or confidence in like who I was because as a child, when you're basically looking for threats all around you, you don't have time to sit back and say, what do I like? What do I want to do? You know, it's always like, am I going to have a breath in the next 30 seconds or am I going to eat a peanut now? So there's a, a different like dynamic there of growth as a child when you're like, and Peter Crone talks about this, like when his parents passed away super young, he had to be super hyper aware and vigilant of all his surroundings because he was unsafe and unprotected. And I heard him say that. And I'm like, yeah, it's the same thing. So he talks about shifting that vigilance, which is fear-based into observation, which is just, you know, detachment and just observing and being aware. And so I had that hyper vigilance as a kid. And basically that 
went on until I figured out that, that that's what was happening, which was when I was 38. So from age 23, when I graduated college until 38 was just addiction. It was just, you know, jail time, hospital stays, broken relationships, DUIs, just tons of wreckage for the next 15 years. And again, like the family paid, the ripple effect in the family, like all of it. And so from 23 to 33 was like that steady decline of like, this is getting bad. This is pretty good. It's fun. This is getting bad. This is getting bad. This is getting bad. Oh shit, this is terrible. And then 33 was my first time that I got a DUI. I had DUIs before, but this was the first DUI where I actually was like in jail. And like, there was like real life consequences, like the job was at stake. And so I, it was my first trip to rehab. And then for the next five years was basically in and out of rehabs, sober for a little bit of time, drunk for most of the time. And then at 38, it was kind of like I was sitting in my kitchen table on November 21st, 2012, and I was sitting there and I had all the drugs I wanted and all the alcohol I could drink. And I just was like, I'm done. You know, and it was because all the pain, all my pain, I could feel all my pain, but like my dad's face, my mom's face, my sister's faces and like the heartbreak. And like, I could feel like heartbreak in my heart, like other people's heartbreak and my heartbreak. I could just basically all the wreckage of the past 15 years was like right here. And I just was like, I don't know what, I know I'm scared. I know that I am confused and I'm lost and I'm hurt and I'm feeling all these things, but I don't know how I'm going to get over all that. But I know that I can't do this anymore. And so I just, that from that moment, it was like full surrender, I guess, and just committed to, I guess it was full surrender. It was fully like, I don't know what the next rest of my life is going to look like, but I know it can't look like this anymore. Mm-hmm. Well, you get to that biggest TD, which is a transitional dilemma where you just can't go any further. You hit the ceiling, you run out of bandwidth to continue, mm-hmm. emotional bandwidth. You run out of bandwidth to process more information. And you just can't go further. And that's, I mean, that's the best thing that can ever happen to us. Yeah. And it's absolutely true because then you have no choice. It's the proverbial fork in the road. Like, what right. do you do? Now, one of the problems with that is that, like, my programming was just, the programming that I had was all bad. You know, now I had to start figuring out what to uninstall, what to reinstall, and like the new stuff. And so mm-hmm. that was a lot of where the fear was. It's just like everything I knew, like all my coping skills basically were. Mm-hmm just irrelevant now mm-hmm. so to move on was like that's another thing like just i had to say i don't know like be a beginner it's so hard for me to be a beginner and i think like a lot of this we talk about masculinity and femininity like as humans really like we're taught that i don't know is not okay it's a school thing like you get graded on what you don't know and you get punished for what you don't know like i don't know like i'm a c student so that means i don't know 30 percent of the information and i'm see it as punishment you know so like that's ingrained in us that it's not okay to say i don't know and then as men like one of the things like men want to like feel superior look superior and be like the protector and if you say i don't know that basically men will make up the story that cuts all that off at the knees right if we could go back maybe and deconstruct a little bit of this and then we can go into you know your success story and how you emerge and everything last time we kind of went over some of the elements of the ace And he did score pretty low, although bullying is reinforcement of shame. You're not good enough. So for men, it is very important in society for them to be strong, for them not to be weak, right? For them to be the protectors. So they have to be these strong people that have it all figured out. They have to be successful in their career, all of these things. And from a very early age, because of his 
it's a hyperactive immune. Hyperactive immune system. But that was just reinforced as he was younger. Like, you are not the man that you should be because you're weak and you're small. So it's like shame, shame, shame going against that, which reinforces this feeling of I am not good enough. And shame is rooted in those two things. I am not enough. I am not worthy of love. And who do I think I am? So it comes in imposter syndrome. And then I am not worthy of love, which is the root of all evil. (laughs) That is the true root of all evil is that feeling of unworthiness of love, which is what we're born with. We're born worthy. So to delve deeper into maybe what had this stemmed from, I asked him and I'll ask again, if there was something that happened when his mom was pregnant with him or in the relationship that they were having. Yeah. So when my mom got pregnant with me, I guess in you know, early 1974, she thought she had cancer for three or four months of the pregnancy. So basically my mom, for the first three months of the pregnancy, thought that I was coming to kill her. I mean, she didn't think that me, Sam, was coming to kill her as a person, trying to kill a person. Like she thought I was some entity, some energy that was trying to come and take her life. She didn't know she was pregnant. She didn't know she was pregnant. She She thought she had cancer. So she, her body immediately starts like all the chemicals and whatever to fight, you know, ramp up the defense mechanisms. So basically now my mom thinks I'm trying to come to kill her. Now her body's trying to kill me. Her body's trying to rid her of me. And again, not me, but the energy. And so I think that to have that, that's basically the beginning of my experience this time that I'm here is that, you know, I was a problem. I was evil. I was something that was coming to kill her. And so, yeah, you had to fight for survival even before your brain was fully formed. So because of that, his amygdala was hyperactive, you know, an enlarged amygdala, which is what we see in all like people who suffer from addiction and compulsivity and all that stuff is an enlarged amygdala because it puts them into that fight, flight, or freeze state. They're fighting for their survival. So he came out fighting for his survival. Yeah. And then throw in all the external stuff, the asthma, the allergies, all the threats in the external world. And it's just, it continues that path. And the important thing here is just to understand and have awareness around that, right? To understand like, okay, these are the things that have made me that way. Because for one, it takes away the shame of I am bad. I am an alcoholic. I am this, I am that. It takes away the shame of that because there's a reason why it happened and there's a solution as well. So it detaches like the behavior from the person. So, and then another thing about shame is like, so... We're born with this worthiness of love. So if God is love, which I believe God is love, and let's say that the devil is shame, the devil is going to want to take us away. That shame wants to take us away from that feeling, that worthiness of love. And everything that happens in our life, we're going to keep reinforcing it. And it's going to create that bigger, what they talk about, that void, that hole that we have, which is it's unworthiness of love. And there are things that we can talk about afterwards that will help you when you're in that feeling, like really go down to it. Why am I doing this? What's causing this behavior? Is it that I feel that I'm not good enough? Is it that I feel like I shouldn't be doing this? That I'm, you know, ultimately I'm not good enough. I'm not worthy of love. It's what everything boils down to. Yeah. I remember thinking as a kid that I was a burden and no one ever told me that. I don't even know where it came from, but. No one ever said you're a burden, but I felt that like my symptom, my asthma and my allergies were a burden on the family, financially, emotionally, all those things. And 
Also with tennis, I think more than it being a protection, it was you being like, I am good enough. Look, I can do this. I'm good at sports, you know, because shame will find a way to come out, you know, like, like, nope. So you're either you puff up or you shrink down. Mm -hmm. So it's like, nope, you know, like, and you just use that as a way to validate yourself, to validate yourself as a man that is worthy of love. There's a lot of validation in tennis. That's accurate. It's beautiful. (laughs) So how did you emerge from the fire? So after that moment, at 38, I basically just, you know, I kind of opened myself up to what do I need to do? Like, and this was moving into Alcoholics Anonymous. So that means like one of the big things, but I just want to take suggestions. Like I was willing to be like, what do I do next? I don't know. And to say, I don't know, or just to be a beginner is the most magical thing that I've ever experienced because it happens so fast. I had this thing in my head where it's like, this is going to take forever. Like, I'm never going to be okay. And we get that. Like, we feel bad. We feel pain. And like, we admit we have anxiety or depression. And that to admit it, we, or I would think like, I'm going to be like this forever now. I admit it. That means that this is who I am. I'm this forever. And when I admitted that I didn't know, like things started to happen really fast. I was in North Carolina at the time. I went to a rehab in Michigan, then Utah, and then ended up in San Francisco about a year later. And from there, I found personal training. So I'd always been an athlete, the tennis player. And part of my addiction when I was about like three years before 35, I got really out of shape, like 250 pounds, just terrible, just out of shape. And so one of the things that helped me when I first got sober was like getting back in shape, you know, taking care of my body, taking care of my nutrition, taking care of all those things. And so personal training was something that was like, you know, I would love to do that. And I had the opportunity to do it. And it led me to where I am now where I do men's work, but it was the first catalyst that got me into like my purpose of like coaching and helping others and like seeing that like we can all have an effect on each other basically. And so to have that ability to serve other people with the knowledge that I had and then from the physical stuff, the working out and the nutrition, like it just gradually evolved into somewhat of like sobriety coaching mm-hmm. where I was helping guys not so much like get sober. I tried that for a second and it's just didn't work. One of the things that was a problem for me for those five years when I was in and out of rehab was that you, know, you go to rehab 30, 60, 90 days, whatever, and you're like, I feel great. I'm sober. Like things are good. And you come out and like life is still right there. And you're like, oh crap. What do I do now? Like I'm sober and I don't have any like, there's no recalibration to life coming out of a rehab environment like that. So like that was always my downfall. Like how do I now go on dates sober? How do I continue to go to football games sober? How do I do all the things? I love sober. Like I've been protected for 30 days. Well, particularly, how do you do those things from a place of unworthiness still? Yeah. You just solved the symptom, which is putting the bandaid on the gunshot wound, but you didn't take care of the problem, which was feeling not enough, unworthy, still the shame inside of him. Yeah. And for me, that manifested as anxiety and depression. Mm. So I would, again, you take away the drink and of course you're going to feel better. I mean, even if you're not an alcoholic and you stop drinking for 90 days, you're going to feel better like physically clarity in the head. But again, like if you don't handle that story, that unworthiness story of like, I don't matter, or mine was that I need to be saved. Like whatever the story may be, if you don't handle it, it's still going to manifest somewhere in your life. And most likely if you're in that situation, you're going to go back to the alcohol. So I started helping these guys with that recalibration, like basically like, okay, you're out of rehab and you did some work. Maybe you went through the first four steps or whatever, but like, now let's look at like, really like why, like, Let's get to the underlying issues here. 
some guys will come to me like, I feel anxious around my family now. Like I have anxiety about like going home from work and hanging out with my family. And because honestly, like they would drink on the way home or they would get go home and have a drink and like so they didn't have to deal with this. So basically it's nothing different. The only thing they changed was they removed the drinks, but they still had the story. So now it's like, well, you have to start looking at why. Let's work it back because you can keep treating the symptom of it. That's fine. You're going to be miserable, but you can keep doing that. Or you can start reverse engineering it and going back to like, when did that start for you? Was your house an anxious household? There could be any kind of trigger from your childhood to trigger this, but like, why do you feel anxious around you? Let's work it back. So I started working with guys on how to like uproot these things that were forcing them into that symptom of drinking. And from there, I realized that most of it is the anxiety and depression, the mental health, the mental health, the mental illness is there. And from there, like, okay, you say, again, this is awareness. Like I suffer from depression. It doesn't mean you're going to always suffer, but it means like you have to figure out why. And guys get to 30, 35, 40 years old. Like it's not a new thing to suffer from depression. Very rarely is it a new thing. Like most of the time it's been there all along, but they again treated the symptoms of it. So I started working with these guys to like uproot the symptoms of the depression. And then so that sobriety coaching moved into mental health coaching. So now instead of, you know, treating the guys that are just out of rehab. It's like, how about we stop you from even having to go to rehab? How about we stop you from even having to become an alcoholic or, mm-hmm. you know, ruin your family or whatever, however it may look through anger and through toxicity or whatever it may be. Like, let's get to the wounds, your masculine wounds and find out like how you can overcome those. And then that will, again, you don't have to get to the pain point to change all that stuff. Yeah. So I wanted to add to like, the reason why I stopped going to AA is because I just refused to continue to say I am an alcoholic. Because the difference between shame and guilt, shame is I am bad. I am wrong. Guilt is I did something wrong. And that's why guilt can be very helpful because we experience the pain of moving away from our higher self when we do something that we shouldn't do, which creates this feeling of guilt and pushes us to do something right. Now, when we're stuck in I am the problem, there's no solution. So I, I was like, I outgrew the mindset because I believe I can overcome anything. And I think that's helpful in removing shame from what people feel is you are not that. You are not a liar. You are not a cheater. You have done those things. But when you say I am, then that makes you feel like you're not good enough for love. You're unworthy of love because you are this bad person. And I think as a society, we need to collectively remove the stigma or the identity that we place on people that they are a liar. They are an alcoholic. My sisters continue to see me as an alcoholic. And because of that, in their eyes, I'm unworthy of their love. You know, they won't talk to me because of that. And so it's a constant fight of fighting that shame and calling it out for what it is. You know, like I did have a drinking problem in the past that caused a lot of pain, but I am not a drinking problem, you know? I'm like breathing easier hearing you say that. <laughs> I feel the exact same way. Like AA was a great stepping stone to like handle the stuff. But then again, like there's such a ceiling to it because mm-hmm. it's always like, I need to be fixed. I need to be fixed. I need to be fixed. Or I can't be fixed, then yeah. this is just going to help me cope for well, the rest and, of my life. Again, like, I need to be fixed is inherently, like, fixing something is, like, that can be viewed as pretty good. But if you look underneath that, the backside of that statement is, I am broken. So by constantly trying to fix something, you're subconsciously telling yourself, I'm always broken. Mm-hmm. And if I am broken, you're, you're going to be broken. Mm-hmm. And so to move past that, you have to just 
get out of that conversation. You have to say, I am recovered. Recovered ED, yeah. Yeah. Past tense, yeah. That's, I'm recovered. That's, I love saying I'm recovered. Yes. It's, it feels so much more powerful. It feels so powerful to just say, like, I'm recovered. But you have to believe that you can heal. Yeah. I mean, you have to believe that you can heal. Otherwise, <laughs> and also recognizing what your coping mechanism is when you do start to feel unworthy or imposter syndrome. Do you shrink? Do you puff up? Do you run away? Do you hide? Do you go and drink? Do you, what are you doing to mask that pain that you're feeling? And I think some healthy ways is we learn in NLP that to have a pattern interrupt when you're getting triggered. Like, let's say my sister who doesn't talk to me for months, she sends a message for alcoholics and tells me that there's a virtual community out there. Now, normally I would respond like something, you know, equally as hurtful, I would hope. But to have a pattern interrupt, you could just be like, shame, 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 shame. Call it out. It's shame. It's shame. And then do something that can help you to reinforce whatever it needs to be. You can cry. You can call a friend. But talk about it because shame hates the light. And that's the difference between the shadow and the light. When you're hiding in your shadow, when you're acting out of your shadow, you're acting in the power and the realm of shame. And that's when we hurt. That's when we are a danger to others. We're a danger to others. We're a danger to ourselves because we're acting out of that feeling of unworthiness of love. And to recognize it is super important. Okay, how can I stop this pattern? Call somebody who you know loves you who won't judge you and talk to them about it because that's the best way to find it is through empathy and forgiveness of ourselves. No, I am innately a good person. I've done good things. Remember a time when you did good things and then you can remember that you are innately. Also, when you exercise, it removes the critical faculty between your conscious and your unconscious. So that is the best time to imprint. Sometimes when I get filled with that feeling of shame and it's so painful, I jump on my bike, I blast my music, and I just speak words of affirmation to myself. You are good enough. You are enough. You are love. You are kindness. You are all of these things because then it goes directly into my unconscious mind and it reinforces that feeling of love, that I am worthy of love. So having those little like safety mechanisms that can bounce you out of that feeling of shame because ultimately that's what drives all of our unwanted behavior. Yeah. And then have those, that response, that pattern up is so huge. Cause I do the same thing, like having a bad day. I mean, it's amazing what 30 minutes of exercise will do. Oh, it just yeah. shifts everything. Now to like a defense mechanism to prevent that, like the morning and the nights when our brains are in the theta states to have like positive input in the mornings and then before you go mm. to bed at night. Morning routine. Yeah. Morning routine and evening routine too. Like just because you don't like going to bed with like the negativity you pick up throughout the day, like just free yourself of that. Like, I do a shower meditation. You just walk out in the shower and you just imagine the water just washing off the day. Or like I have my clients do it at the end of the week. If they had it like, yeah, I had a bad week. Good. Go out in the shower and call me back. I can just take 10 minutes and just visualize that washing. That. Showers help. Yeah. Also, if you pour baking soda over you, by the way, put baking soda water. <laughs> I'm serious. It, it like takes people's energy next, off of you. Next level. Psychic told me that. Interesting. Interesting. Okay. So I would like, you to go into a little bit about this sacred masculine. And I just think it's so beautiful with his whole story and everything that Sam has been through that he has turned it around and delved into the absolute opposite of all of that, all of that destructive behavior, that internal destruction, external destruction, and has, you know, committed to embodying what sacred masculinity is and being an example of that to his fellow men. and 
I think that there's so many people who need to hear what it is. Yes, I read a definition of sacred masculinity and it said the first words were strong but not dangerous. So having that, like holding that space of being strong, standing up tall and listening and having an open heart, but not, you know, being dangerous, not using that strength, like through anger. Anger is a huge one that is not sacred masculinity at all. And the way that we handle anger is, you know, we lash out at the wife or we lash out at our dog or our friends or whatever. It could be anything like you just, you lash out at yourself you know, eat, eat poorly or just go on some, go on a bender. Like that's all anger lashing out and manifesting itself. So when you can understand that, like to be strong and to be confident and to stand, basically stand up and just shoulders back, like physically, the physical will manifest itself in the emotional inside. Like there's a lot to be like standing in the Superman pose. Mm-hmm. If you like, I do grounding every morning and like standing in the sun in the Superman pose. It allows you to receive and stand up strong in your, I mean, I don't think this is just masculine, but the feminine too can just stand there and just receive and be strong. But the sacred masculinity is like that. It's the ability to be dangerous, but you're not dangerous. You know, like you have that ultimate protective energy and that protective aura around you. And I think too, that like a lot of the conversation around masculine gets thrown into that. The buzzword these days is toxic masculinity Mm -hmm. and toxic is a symptom. Toxicity is a symptom. What it really is, is the wounded masculine. Mm -hmm. You know, men are, we've been wounded because of the things as a child, like gay guys, like they've been told they're not man enough. Like Mm -hmm. they've been, they have this wound. And Mm -hmm. for me, it was like the physical stuff. And so like, we have all these wounds that we haven't healed from that manifest themselves as the toxic masculine, the guy that the rape, the abuse, you know, in the boardroom, like the domineering, like we're going to do it my way or the highway or be a man about it. Like all these, you can go on forever about these cliches, but like, the thing is, is like when you can be stand in your sacred masculinity and I understand too, like there's the balance of the feminine energy in there too. You have to honor that because like the man is all like do, do, do. And that doing turns into like, I can fix this. Shut up. It's my way. Like all the things that it can go wrong. The feminine is the being. The sacred masculine it has a, such a sense of being, just being there. Just And then the people around the sacred masculine will know like if there's a problem, like I can come to this person not because necessarily like I'll take care of what your problem is because I will hold space for your problem. I will allow you to come to me as you are and love you as you are not try and change you or fix you or anything like that. It's just being there and holding that space for what it could be a feminine. It could be another masculine. It could be a guy. It could be anything, but just to hold that space is the most sacred thing you can do. Well, I you mentioned last time about what that does for us, right? Right. So when we come to y'all constantly for, you know, you have all the answers, you have all the answers, you have all the answers and it creates dependence. It creates dependence. So now we're dependent on you to fix it and y'all get tired of it. You're fucking tired of all these people depending on me. Like, oh, and then you push away. So that's why it's so important to just adjust that mentality because dependence isn't what we want. We want interdependence, not right. dependence. Yeah, yeah, we want to be whole and know that we have the answers within ourselves. So holding space is really important, but also Brene Brown talks about in her book, Women, Men, and Worthiness. Anger is a huge sign of shame. That's just how it manifests with men. And that's when they become dangerous, not the protector. So they either will become the protector or the abuser, right? Sometimes they can be both, but anger, it just means what it's a sign of is that there's something inside of you that's triggering that feeling of unworthiness. Maybe there's something that you still have that you haven't told anybody. 
that you're still hanging on to and it's coming out in anger because maybe when your wife nags at you or your girlfriend, it reinforces that I am not worthy. I'm not good enough. And so it comes out in this form of anger. I used to have a massive anger problem as well because there was so much stuff that I was hiding inside of my life. We were talking about this weekend how really there can't be the sacred masculine. Like guys cannot show up with that to be that container unless we embody the divine feminine. And Autumn is going to go into her a little bit of her story and what it truly means to be a divine feminine. So what I've discovered, what has come to me through the molestation of my brother when I was four and he was 12, was when the shame of the situation was removed, well, all that was left was pure love of a child for her brother. And also I had a bad breakup with someone who was psychologically complicated, let's say. And I just realized that what we are is unconditional love. There is no behavior. There's no behavior that can take that away from us. And that is where our power is. When we realize who we are, which is unconditional love, they can show up fully for us. But it's these men, they come in us and we birth them. And we are unconditional love. They cannot hurt us. They cannot destroy it. They cannot take it away. It is who we are. Well, they can't survive without like our milk that we give them, you know? And that truly is what divine femininity is, is it's that unconditional love. It's the unconditional love of a mother. We did a journey together and we went back. I did a journey with Autumn and we went over, you know, all of the times that that had happened to her as a child. And ultimately it's that thing again. So we, as a woman, we feel that unworthiness when we are abused because, you know, that ultimately feels like we aren't worthy of love if somebody would hurt us in that way. And, you know, she's been on this beautiful journey of like letting that go and recovering her higher self and what that means to be loved. And it unlocked this really powerful memory that she had forgotten about, which she just shared with us uh, or with me yesterday or two days ago. Um, Well, my brother's an amazing (laughs) artist, but when he was young, he was obsessed with drawing demons and he would say, that's me. And I remembered that just the other day that he saw himself as a demon. They had a very complicated childhood as well, an alcoholic father and lots and lots of conflict and spankings and like just all of the, she scored very high on the ace as did her brother. And so that just reinforced. And what we talked about was how all of the ace, all of those things is is shame, right? Because we felt shame for the abandonment when your dad left. We felt shame for all of that, which just reinforces unworthiness. And he embodied this feeling of, I am a monster. I am a demon, you know? That's what his shadow shame turned into. And ultimately, when we remember that we are unconditional love, it is triumph over victimization because ultimately that cannot be destroyed ever. And that's what I think they mean when they say we can't fight fire with fire or hate with hate. We can't fight shame with shame. We can't shame people for being bad and evil if we want to heal them and help them. And Autumn brought up a really good point last time, which was just like a huge revelation about the Me Too Mm -hmm. movement. 
So all these women have come forth and me too. We've all seen it. We all did see it. And unfortunately, and my thought during all of this was, where's the men? Where are the men? I mean, there certainly were certainly men coming out saying me too, but where are the men coming out saying it was me? I was the abuser. Well, they can't. New hashtag, it was me. <laughs> yes. They can't come out. There's no space for them. There's no space for them to come out. And mm-hmm. they are sitting in so much shame. And if my brother's depictions of demons aren't enough for you. You come out, you get vilified. No, crucified. Yeah. It's, crucified. I mean, all the ones that were accused through that movement were just like careers. Absolutely. There is no space for them and we need to create space for them. These are our brothers. There are sons. There are fathers. There are uncles. We love them. We have to give them space. We have to give them space. And when we feel pain and when we feel that pain that we can't let go of, is because our higher self loves them unconditionally. And anytime we move away from that love, like when we go through a painful breakup, when we are still feeling pain, it's because we are trying to think negatively of that person. Oh, he fucked me over. He's a fuckhead. He's a sociopath. He's this, that, and the other. You're saying all the things that I say. (laughs) It causes pain because our higher self doesn't feel that way. Our higher self loves them. Love is eternal. And only when we get back to that, unconditional love. And that doesn't mean that we have to be in communication with them if they are not willing to do the work and to love, but we can still see them through the lens of unconditional love and light. And that's the only way that's going to cause true healing in the world, because otherwise we can demonize the corporations and the patriarchal system that's destroying the earth, you know, through all of that, that's just all huge manifestations of the same thing. Right. So We, I think it's our prerogative as women to be that unconditional love that people need, to hold that space, to listen to the things that they have done in their lives that cause shame and that innate feeling of unworthiness. And then the job for the divine masculine is to hold space for us. Yeah. Let it be okay for you to come out and say, and and not come out almost in like the attacking mode. They come out just being like, this is my experience and I need to be heard Mm -hmm. and I need to be seen. Mm -hmm. And the only thing that the divine feminine requires, which is nothing that requests is honor of the love we give. The divine feminine mother earth does not require anything. She does not demand anything. She requests honor. Beautiful. So if anybody has anything out there that they are holding on to that has caused shame in their lives, that they would like to, you know, they need a safe space. We're here. We're here to hear what it is. We're here to hold space with empathy without judgment. And if you do need to talk with somebody, make sure that that person isn't going to judge you, you know, that they are worthy to hear what you have to say, that they're going to love you for your vulnerability, not despite it. And I think that's why AA is actually so helpful is because You can go into these spaces and you can talk about all of the things that cause shame in your life. And it's important to have community. You need community. You need people around you that you can trust, that will listen to you, that won't judge you. And we need to be that for each other. 
I think that's so important. Sam, do you want to tell us about your business? And if people, if there's any guys out there who want to work with him, he's a very, very gifted coach. So my business now is, I do men's work. So it's men's coaching. And it's basically, it's a lot of removing the blocks that hold men back. So the way, the analogy I like to use is that a lot of men have gotten to the mountaintop. They've climbed the hill, they've overcome the rocks, and then they've achieved success in certain areas of their life. But they now are at the top and they see a beautiful meadow and pasture in front of them. And they go to step into that, that life that they want, but there's a glass wall there. And they can't see it. They can't get around it and they can't see it. So my, with my coaching, what I do is I, that glass wall is tied back to other things in the past they never dealt with. And they use the business success as a cover. They use drinking as a cover. They used whatever that may be as a cover. Mm-hmm. And so now... All of the above. Oh, yeah, all of the above. And so now they, they see this beautiful thing, life that they work so hard to create, but they can't... They, there's something holding them back subconsciously from stepping into it. So what I do is I, we go into the subconscious and we go into the, the roots and the stories and the programs that were installed in us so young and we remove them and then the glass wall just melts away. Yeah, I just work with guys to free up their mind, free up their bandwidth so they can have the room to step into the life that they deserve. I love that. Yeah, and then another thing I just wanted to mention just to reinforce it is that we can shame and demonize these the patriarchy and the male chauvinist all we want, but they are like that because usually a mother wound and that lack of empathy and connection and love from their family, from their mother. And so it is our prerogative to change that, to hold space and to love them and to take away that judgment that we have for them. That's the only way that we can change the world. The only way we triumph over victimization is unconditional love and knowing that that is what we are and that is what we have and that can never be taken away. Yeah, and I think the, one of the best ways you can step into unconditional love is to be vulnerable, for, allow for vulnerability yes. and to step yes. into vulnerability yourself. Yes. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, just listening to her talk about unconditional love and the unconditional love that she has for her brother, it's life changing. Mm-hmm. It really is. It's, it's incredible because it really happens a lot. I had a client who used to be in the group that I was coaching who had done the same thing to his little sisters. And he is one of the sweetest, kindest guys that I know. And he cares so much about his family as a beautiful family and about growth and improvement and just how to be a better person. And I didn't even think about that when I was working with him because I know his heart. And like, I know that he did those things because that violence was modeled to him. And we just have to be able to recognize the pure human soul who's our equal in each one of us. With that being said, recognize if those people are willing to practice love back with you. And if they're not, then you can sever the connection or else it can continue to be damaging, but then continue to see them in the lens of source energy, which is that they are pure and whole, that their higher self is, and that they're just stuck in shame. They're just still stuck in shame. So where can people reach you, Sam? So on Instagram, it's at Sam Gibbs Morris. That's G-I-B-B-S, Sam Gibbs Morris. My website is samgibbsmorris.com and I will be starting a mastermind called the Dragon Slayer Collective in 2021. Nice. If you want to finish on that, just send me a DM. Awesome. And then Autumn, where can they reach you? Very gifted activation guide. 
it's X ray to indigo. I think there's some underscores in there somewhere, but I'm pretty sure there's no other X ray to indigo. Or well, you can look at my name, Autumn Acosta. We'll have all of those in the show notes as well. Uh, we are starting a fundraising initiative for the activation project. We have a long list of people who really need help and would like to do our activation program, but need some financial assistance. So if you are looking to bless your life, if you need a charity and a nonprofit to donate to this beautiful, wonderful Christmas season, please reach out to us at become.activated at gmail.com. And you can change somebody's life. You can change your own by helping somebody else. I think that that's the best way to begin to connect with people is by helping people being of service. All right. Thank you guys. Happy holidays. We'll talk to you next week.